Uh, for our Old Testament reading this morning, we turn to Psalm 1 and 2, and this will be the focus of the sermon this morning. So this is God's Word. Give careful attention to it. Psalm 1, the way of the righteous and the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree that the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Well, in practice, over the centuries, the Jewish uh, community has always taken very seriously the notion that learning should be sweet. Some of this they took from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, where you'll recall it says, train, uh, the Hebrew verb there is chanoch, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, close quote. In modern Hebrew, we see something similar in that education is called chenuch, and an educator is called machanach. Through the centuries, the Jewish community has understood this word to be linked with the meaning having to do with rubbing the palate or the gums. Um, We're not quite sure where this comes from. Uh, One writer suggested that the original meaning may be related to something that's common in the Middle East, where Arab mothers have a custom of smearing date juice on the gums of newborns who are teething. Calvin, even in the 16th century, noticed that the Jews in his day practiced applying honey butter uh, in this way, uh, to their children's gums and palates. This use of honey in Jewish education it can be seen in a practice typical of the first day of school among Jewish students. 
So what the students and the teacher would do is they'd come into the classroom and the student is shown a slate on which is written the Hebrew alphabet and two verses of scripture, Leviticus 1.1 and Deuteronomy 33.4. And then one further sentence, quote, the law will be my calling, unquote. Then the teacher would read the passages and the student would repeat them back. And subsequently, the slate would be covered in honey. And the student would lick off the honey, reminding one of Ezekiel, you remember, with the eating of the squirrel, when he said in chapter 3, verse 3, I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Obviously, the rabbis wanted uh, to cause their students to enjoy the study of the law and Torah. Now, some of you may be wondering why I'm covering two stanza or two psalms this morning instead of just one. You may be wondering if I'm following one of my heroes, Reverend Van Drunen, who has been treating us to two stanzas each Sunday on Psalm 119 over the past couple of years. I am not. Uh, rather, I want you to think in this new year amidst various goals we tend to make during the season. Uh, because one of your elders in particular is very concerned about goal-making. Um, how can I grow closer to God? Uh, the Psalter's answer to that question, and that's a good place to begin, is to consider two goals that are commended to us at the highest level and as the most sure path to God. On the one hand is study, and on the other hand is prayer. Let me explain. In the collection of the Psalms that make up our Psalter, there's good evidence from ancient times that Psalm 2 was actually Psalm 1 at one time. Uh, Just one piece of evidence, and there's others that I won't go into, uh, is from Acts 13.33, where an important manuscript refers to Psalm 2 as the words written in the first psalm. And that begs the question, well, what of Psalm 1? Uh, Well, we have good evidence that Psalm 1 was put where it was at the head of the Psalter as a kind of frame uh, or a kind of bracket, uh, if you will, a kind of preamble uh, to bracket and frame the entire Psalter. Now, this raises the question, an interesting question. What did our ancient forefathers consider the highway to God? What's the quickest path uh, to God and the deity? Is it study or is it prayer? Or stated another way, perhaps from a more rabbinic perspective, does God's revelation come through study, as Psalm 1 would suggest, or worship of the king? In other words, through visible acts of piety and prayer, as Psalm 2 would suggest. For as important as prayer is in this Psalter, as we've been hearing recently, there are many beautiful prayers expressed, indeed, in our Psalter. Psalm 1, standing as a preamble, is not prayer, nor is it a prayer. This is not to deny that most individual Psalms are prayers. However, note that Psalm 1, standing at the head of the Psalter as a kind of preamble, is not a prayer. It's not even addressed to God. So what do we notice in Psalm 1? Well, it's very easy to see that we notice, first of all, two ways. 
Right on the surface of the psalm, it clearly sets out before us two paths for human beings to follow. This can easily be contrasted in the content of verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 and 5. It's been called the formula of the two ways, the two paths, the two roads. God knows the way of the righteous, but he also knows the way of the wicked that leads to destruction. And so here at the beginning of the psalm, beginning of the Psalter, in verse 2, we see that the medium of revelation, the highest path to God, is actually meditation on God's Torah. Now, what is the psalmist referring to here? This question's difficult because we don't know the exact date of Psalm 1, but it does beg the question of whether the psalmist is holding out as the ideal path to God, meditation on God's Torah, if he's referring to the book of Deuteronomy, is he referring to the first five books of God's law, is he referring to the laws himself, um, what the psalmist is referring to is God's merciful instruction from various parts of God's scripture. In other words, his merciful instruction in many parts of God's canon. This is the living speech of God, as indicated as we've been hearing in Psalm 119. This meditation on God's law is reviving, according to Psalm 19.7. It's cheering to the soul, according to Psalm 19.8. It has power. It radiates light and illuminates the soul, according to Psalm 119, 105, and 130. These are the experiences in the revelation of God that bring a righteous man delight and enjoyment, according to Psalm 11, 77, 92, 143, and 174, just to name a few. This joy is obtained, according to this psalm, as the preamble to the Psalter, through a meditation, an actual audible, soft murmuring of God's scripture while one meditates upon it. Perhaps meditation is the best way to translate this for us. But not only are there two ways described in the preamble in this opening psalm, there's also two kinds of people, very easily seen. On the one hand, you have the righteous, the zadikim, and on the other hand, you have the wicked, the rashaim. The righteous person has his delights in God's word, and he meditates on it day and night, in other words, all the time. He's the truly fortunate person who chooses the right way that brings blessing. Emphatically contrasted with this kind of person is the wicked, the rasha'im, whose life is like chaff, that leftover light stuff at the harvest floor that's carried away by the wind. The psalmist is taking pains to make a black and white contrast. It's clear right there on the surface. The righteous has a life marked by peaceful solitude, whereas the life of the wicked can be described as having a character of the mass of the lost That is, those people who drift away. That's the life of the outcome of the wicked. But verse 5 raises another important question about the meaning of the wicked, not standing in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What does this mean according to Psalm 1? Well, the wicked have also been found guilty before the Torah of God. In contrast to the truly happy life, 
of blissful solitude of the righteous, uh, the wicked have separated themselves from the direction, the way, the path of the righteous and of God. And therefore they are excluded from the sanctuary where Torah is expounded, God's instruction. One thinks of Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? And who shall dwell on your holy hill? You see, friends, the wicked hate God's instruction. They devise their own principles for life and their own maxims for living, sadly. And therefore, they are excluded, either due to their own design or being removed deliberately from the community influenced by God's Torah, that is, his instruction. They're the ones removed from the worship of God. As Psalm 5 says, just a few psalms later, quote, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers, close quote. So having seen the two kinds of people and the two paths that one may choose, then we look at the paradigmatic person that is described. In other words, the ideal person. You see, the stark contrast between lifestyles of the righteous, who is sustained by lively meditation upon God's Torah, and the directionalist lifestyle of the wicked is clear here. But everything spoken in Psalm 1 about the righteous person entails a character that transcends transcends any individual human being. As one author has said, there are expressions that definitely transcend human, psychological, or moral possibilities. You see, the picture in Psalm 1 is of the righteous person that features, bears the features of the super-individual, the paradigmatic person, the ideal person, if you will. Even the most righteous Pharisee who gives his uttermost energy and attention to obey God's law and to meditate and study and memorize it falls way short of the description in Psalm 1. No, the New Testament declares that Jesus Christ, as Paul says, whom God made our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30, is the fulfillment of this Old Testament picture. Jesus declared to his disciples when they urged him to eat something, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, John 4.34. Therefore, Christian, you may recognize that in the congregation of that God of the New Covenant, you may experience joyful, lifelong relationship to God in and through the scriptures, in and through Torah, which are founded upon the life imparting and life-bestowing power of God, even as described in Psalm 1. So yes, with regards to goal setting, since this new year is on everybody's mind, I make bold to mention it. It is and through uh, him, that is Christ, that you too may participate in this ever-fortunate, blessed manner of life and existence as a new creature, the perfectly righteous one, namely Jesus, as you give yourself to the study and listening and instruction of his word. What about Psalm 2? What a great piece of poetry, immortalized in so much music and so much other poetry. The central thought of the psalm is worldwide dominion of the king of Zion. The Davidic king is the firstborn son of God, the highest among kings of the earth, all the kings and rulers of the earth. Psalm 2 is actually one of the psalms most frequently quoted 
in the New Testament scriptures. And from the perspective of early Christianity, it is a uh, preeminent uh, messianic psalm. First trophy, there's four of them. The Confederacy of the Nations, verses 1 through 3. In verses 1 and 2, the poet begins by describing the mustering of a tumultuous crowd in a great revolt. The nations eager to cast off their allegiance to this ideal king. And notice the opening question, why? Why would the nations do this? That sets the tone. There's amazement to the fact that they want to cast off uh, the fetters that should uh, ensnare them in, in a proper way. And then verse 3 continues with the represented bombastic statements. How is this rebellion interpreted by early Christians? Well, the scriptures tell us in the book of Acts, Acts 4, 23 through 28, we read, quote, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant and our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against his holy servant Jesus, whom you have appointed. They did what your power and will have decided beforehand would happen. You see, brothers and sisters, even our forefathers in the early Christian church saw the fulfillment uh, being carried out of Psalm 2 and the antagonism against the gospel and the spread of the gospel among the nations and uh, that this was fulfilled even by the opposition, in part it was fulfilled, by uh, the opposition to Jesus, by Herod, by Pontius Pilate, by the Gentiles, and by some in Israel. And so, too, it's being fulfilled even this day. In our own day and age, there's growing hostility, need I remind you, towards Christian positions in the media, in the academy, and in government. Hostility is becoming more overt in its efforts to prosecute hate speech laws in misapplied ways, for example, and many other examples we could give. And therefore, there's a growing and urgent need to equip Christian brothers and sisters to know how to respond to these assaults. And, of course, one of the chief ways is confidence in God's word. Second strophe, God uh, mocks their puny efforts, verses 4 to 6. Notice the contrast between God enthroned, on the one hand, rendered in the ESV, he who sits in the heavens, vis-a-vis what we had just read, the tumultuous crowd bombastically taking their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, the only laughing matter here is the arrogance of the wicked. And then we come to verse 6, and the subject I is put right up front at the beginning for emphasis. As for me, says God Almighty, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In short, heaven triumphs over the arrogant and the proud. Those who would exalt themselves will indeed be abased, if not now, surely in the future. God confounds the wise. No wonder the Apostle Paul, who saw it so clearly, would later say, 1 Corinthians 1.20, Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Or again later in the book of Colossians chapter 2. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public public spectacle of them, triumphing over them uh, by the cross. You see, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus has brought it in. Although we do not see it in its fullness, for not everything is underneath his feet as of yet, the fact of the matter is he has triumphed. It's like a rooster who has his head cut off. Uh, Satan runs around, makes a bloody mess of everything. But what happens to the rooster who has his head cut off? He'll bleed out eventually. It's an accomplished fact. And then the divine decree, verses 7 and 9. Here we see the divine decree. And what's it referring to? Some see this as the kind of hyperbolic language uh, that kings would exercise, we know from inscriptions. In other words, um, they boast of their vast dominion in order to impress their subjects and the surrounding uh, nations. I don't think that's right. I think rather this is a prophecy, so to speak, of an expansion based upon the promise made to David. You remember when Nathan came to David and promised in 2 Samuel 7? To his progeny, his children, the following would happen. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. In the psalm, the I will tell, I will recount language may have been read by a priest or a temple official. We don't know as a coronation rite. But nevertheless, here is the exaltation of the true son of David, the king of the universe to come. We learn of its value, its fulfillment in the book of Hebrews, where the writer to Hebrews says in verse 5 of chapter 1, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his post-resurrection appearances, made an application of Psalm 2 to his disciples when he gave them the commission to go out and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. This leads us back to the final strophe, uh, the final section of the poem in verses 10 through 12. Notice here the final appeal goes out to the nations. Be instructed, be warned, O nations. Verse 11's proved very troublesome to translators. Perhaps best it could be rendered, rejoice with trembling, which is not too difficult to imagine with regards to the majestic, august king who's been described and represented, the kind of awesome posture and response that it should engender. And then verse 12, kiss the sun, kiss the sun. Here's an ancient sign of homage and submission given to rulers. This can be seen as an appropriate counteraction to the rulers, uh, the description of the rulers' rebellious posture early on in the psalm. Uh, here, kiss the sun, show your subjection uh, to the true king of kings. You would not notice in translation unless you were told so. Uh, the word for sun here is actually in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. It's actually kiss the bar, like uh, bar Jonah, or as opposed to Ben, son, Hebrew, like Benjamin. Well, why is this? Well, because who are the addressees of the foreign nations? 
<laughs> Why not give it to them in their own language? This is the language of the peoples. Kiss the sun, even like when Christ was on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He cries out that cry of dereliction, meaning that cry of abandonment. And he does so in the language of the people, which was Aramaic at the time, so that it may resonate with their hearts. Kiss the sun. Uh, here is the appeal uh, to go out uh, to uh, the nations to give uh, the glorious king his proper due. So a few points of application and conclusion as we look at these two psalms. First, it should be evident that the deliberate placement of Psalm 1 as a preamble to the Psalter teaches us that the editors of the Psalter, and therefore God himself, has transformed a collection of mostly individual prayers, psalms of prayer, into a collection that is truly intellectual. In other words, God forbid there should be any false dichotomy created between study, instruction, and prayer. Ultimately, it seems as though the Psalter, even in its final form, was happy to let this tension reside in the Psalter. In other words, the pathway to God is neither study nor prayer. It's prayer and study. As Craig Troxell has said in his recent book, With All Your Heart, quote, Our call is nothing short of loving the Lord our God with all our mind. Our thinking is closely related to other chambers of our heart, close quote. May no anti-intellectualism ever be uh, named among us, because that is not the way of the Lord. There's an integral and close relationship between the mind and the heart. And therefore, as you think about devoting yourself to the study of spiritual matters in this coming year, to meditating on God's word this year, to edifying reading, uh, note that you will be doing something that is immeasurably good for your own soul, for your own heart. You will be carving out a pathway to God according to God's word. Secondly, we have seen the strand of supernatural otherworldliness that Psalm 2 has set before us. Here is David and all subsequent Davidic kings who never exercised such worldwide dominion and rule as expressed here, save one. It was left to the true son of David, Christ, to bring in the gospel as the highest good, the ultimate satisfaction where true liberty from our sins and true liberty from the tyranny of the devil uh, may be found. So as you look to the new year and the future, praise be to God who has fulfilled our deepest desires, our longings for the gospel message of abiding significance and abiding power. Oh, the seed of the serpent still rages against the seed of the woman, even though Christ has inaugurated his kingdom. We see this all around us, but the climax of his dominion remains a future reality. It is an accomplished reality. Its manifestation will most certainly come, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In closing, listen to just a few passages from Revelation to John, where Psalm 2 is further echoed. Revelation 1.5. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 2, 26 to 27. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, 
I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Revelation 4.2 At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Revelation 6, 16 to 17. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the land. For the great is the day of their wrath that has come, and who can stand? And finally, Revelation 12, 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Brothers and sisters, in light of these eternal verities, we should worship him and praise him throughout this next year for the salvation he is bringing about and has brought about for you and for me and for many others. Let us pray.